Welcome to Leap Year, a podcast about taking chances, making mistakes, and spending a year, or several, leaping into something new. I'm your host, Jess Kajo, and today is our season finale. On today's show, I speak with Chinese culinary historian and James Beard Award winner, April Chen, about the impact of COVID-19 on her family, community, and the Chinese food scene. April has taken many leaps in her life, most notably leaving the tech world to pursue food writing full-time. The leap has both challenged her and allowed her to develop a voice that brings forward the experience of Chinese farmers, restaurateurs, and workers. Instead of detailing her leap, we have a conversation I feel is more pressing, especially on this election day. The Trump administration has used racism and xenophobia to absolve its responsibility in fighting the coronavirus, while most of us have spent the year sheltering in place, unable to see our friends and families. And our president has everything to do with that. He has led the messaging on the virus and reinforced age-old stereotypes of Chinese Americans as dirty and diseased. His leadership has led to an increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans and has affected businesses of all kinds. For these reasons, I felt it apropos to end the season with a conversation with April. She speaks candidly about how these many months of quarantine have affected her family, her writing, and her spirit. We talk not just about food, but also about the uncomfortable but necessary conversations she's having with her family about the Black Lives Matter movement and how the myth of the model minority is used to keep all people of color oppressed. I hope you enjoy my conversation with April. So I wanted to start off just talking about what your experience has been of the pandemic as a Chinese American food writer who specializes in covering Chinese food and who has a really rich history um, about Chinese food that not everyone brings to the table. What what has it been like for you? What has this time been like for you? Well, I, I would say broadly that just by virtue of being ethnically Chinese, American-born, um, but a, a American-born Chinese person who is very closely connected with the news from overseas, specifically from Hong Kong, the pandemic for me started well before shelter-in-place. The, the psyche of the pandemic as we know it today began very early for me, as early as I would say January, for the simple reason that our relatives from Hong Kong and elsewhere in China had been reporting back that um, there was this virus circulating and people are getting sick and how their local governments were um, cobbling together you know, a public health plan um, on the fly. And on a more personal level, in January, I had several family members in Hong Kong that came down with coronavirus. And the worst part of it was that they have some standing in Hong Kong society and the media just ripped them apart. Um, We here in San Francisco found out pretty much through the equivalent of, you know, Hong Kong TMZ. And uh, it was just devastating. So for me, I I think I had been made aware um, of coronavirus uh, far earlier than the majority of, of Americans by virtue of just being so, so connected to, uh, 
you know, the, uh, the family that I do have over in Asia, which probably explains why I'm feeling so exhausted. I'm <laughs> pandemic fatigue has, has set in. Um, and it's, it's been really, really hard to shake because I feel like I've been living it for much longer than, um, everyone the, else, everyone else. So, and then as far as, you know, the food angle, um, I think early in January and February, you know, most of the world saw the virus as a Chinese problem. And because it was a problem coming out of China, the old, you know, habits of xenophobia, they just cropped up. So mm-hmm. I would say, you know, Chinatowns, Chinese businesses, specifically Chinese restaurants, they were early targets of hate because people what is what what is it there is no easier way to denigrate a people than to denigrate their food so um a a lot of the hate crimes that uh you know i've been paying attention to have been happening um as early as the beginning of the year because even you know expert china watchers were completely blindsided by the coronavirus they saw it as uniquely a a chinese problem a public health crisis coming out of China. No one in their wildest imagination could, 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 could have seen that this would um, overtake the entire world. So to answer your question, I would say I've been unique, uniquely clued in on um, this problem as it has affected Chinese citizens, both um, locally and abroad. Yeah, I think that's really powerful and striking about just the personal experience that you've gone through. I I mean, what really sticks with me is when you're saying how you've been experiencing this for much longer. All of us, most of us have been experiencing this since March, March 13th or March 16th. And for your, your family, for you, it's been since December, really, December, January. And what does it mean to be stuck inside and isolated for such a long time? And then on top of that, be experiencing just rampant xenophobia and racism. Yeah. I mean, we weren't, um, we, we were not isolating ourselves the way we are instructed to now back in January and February, but I can tell you that we were treading very carefully. We were, um, our movements were very conservative. Um, and I'll give you a specific example. My daughter celebrated, you know, her, her, she turned three, um, February 27th. And my family was so frazzled, um, by the whole situation in China as early as January, um, that, that they told me, they said, why don't you celebrate her birthday early? Chinese New Year came early this year. It was in mid-January, and we just did a twofer. They advised me to, you know, just double up on the celebration because who knows what's going to happen in February. And mm-hmm. thank God I did because that was actually the very last time that I sat down indoors at a restaurant. Wow. I have not stepped foot in a restaurant <laughs> since. And um, it's jarring to even say that out loud. Um, but yeah, my family, you know, somehow they, they just, they just had the sense that it was going to be 
a much bigger problem than was current was reported, you know, at the time. Um, and so, yeah, they were already practicing, you know, socially distancing to the extent that they, they could, Mm -hmm. um, I, I would describe it more as just, you know, conserving their movements, not being out in public so much. Um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a long run. <laughs> you say that you talk about not being in a restaurant since that time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm assuming that's also extends to your family of not being in restaurants. And this is a time where we're seeing more people going out to restaurants. I feel like people are trying, are experiencing this in different ways. You know, some people feel, uh, some people do not leave their homes. Some people only see certain people in their pods, maybe one or two people, and they form a pod of, you know, two, three, four, five, however many. Um, and then others feel comfortable going to a restaurant and eating outdoors and being six feet. Or I have some people who are going to the gym again and say that their mm-hmm. gym is set up um, different, you know, different protocols that they feel comfortable with for you as a food writer, um, who has been reporting about, been, been doing reporting about Chinese American experience and, and how that coincides with, within the food world. What has it been like for you not being in a restaurant? Are you ordering takeout? Are you just not engaging in that at all? Is it all home cooking? How are you connecting to that side of yourself, or are you not at all? Uh, that's a great question. Let let me first preface by saying that I think in this day and age, risk mitigation is such a personalized decision. Um, I think what makes you know one person comfortable can easily make another person uncomfortable, and that has everything to do with the fact that. Um, there is no, there truly is no solid, um, federally backed public health plan in the U S right now. So everybody is left. I mean, the States have been left to their own devices to devise, um, public health rules that make sense for their localities. So let me just first preface by saying that I don't judge anyone. I, I, I'm not judging anyone for their health choices um, because we truly don't really have any guideposts. Um, for, for myself, I feel extremely guilty about my decision to not um, do any form of dining, whether it's indoors or outdoors. I do, I do regularly support my local restaurants um, by ordering takeout or, you know, buying whatever products they're selling. But for me, I've decided that for the, for for the sake of my family, which includes, um, toddlers all the way up to, you know, people in their, in their nineties, I will recuse myself from an activity that I absolutely love. And that is eating at a restaurant, um, the the act of commensality, you know, being around people um, over good food. I I mean, it's 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 hands down one of my favorite things to do. And to deprive myself of of of, of my favorite activity has just been grueling. Um, and I'm so guilt ridden 
buy it because on the one hand, I'm really worried about um, the restaurant industry, but I'm also very concerned about, um, I'm, I'm very concerned that I not be uh, introduce any, any risk to the health of my family. So mm-hmm. it's, I'm confused. I'm, I'm, I'm so confused and guilt ridden and um, truly dying to go back to a restaurant, but you know, the, the, the science around aerosols in indoor spaces is just, it's enough to freak any person out, but good on you. If, if you're going, um, if you, if, if you're, you know, one of the lucky 25%, um, uh, dining inside a restaurant, I, I, I don't begrudge you for it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just been so heart wrenching for me to deprive myself of something that I have long enjoyed. What about you? I mean, I haven't gone to eat outside or inside. Um, I haven't gone to eat really. I have, uh, aside from takeout, that's all that I have, you know, I haven't done anything else um, Mm because I just don't feel comfortable. And I also just, I see people taking off their masks outside as well, um, even if they're not eating. And that makes me feel uncomfortable. And I just feel like there's so much we don't know about the virus that makes me wary. And I'm, and, for a while, our pod it was it was really just us, and then we started seeing two of our friends, um, and then we didn't see anyone besides them, mm-hmm. and then we switched to seeing just uh, my husband's parents, and so it's just the four of us now in a pod, and we don't really see anyone else, um, and I don't want to be responsible <laughs> for anybody's death or for anyone getting sick, and I we just don't know some we just don't know. Um, enough about the virus for me to feel comfortable to start eating indoors. I mean, I don't think I'm going to do that until there's a vaccine that, you know, is widely available and taken. Um, and I, I do feel sad for, you know, what has become of the industry because it's affected so many people. I mean, my uh, husband works for a, a hospitality workers union and their membership has been severely impacted by this. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's devastating to people's lives. Um, and at the same time, I feel like I can't, I don't think that my, it's then for me to be going inside and that helping. I think part of the problem is what you were talking about before is that states are having to make these decisions on their own and there mm-hmm. is no federal response. And we don't have a federal response to actually help an industry that employs, I don't know the exact numbers, but I, I think about 15 million people or uh, 10 million people, something like that, um, in the country. It doesn't make any sense that we bail out. Like we always talk about bailouts for the banks or we bailouts for the airline industry. There's no bailout for the restaurant industry that employs far more than either of those industries. Maybe both of those industries put together. So that I think is part of what is missing. It's I, there's always a push to put the onus on the individual to uplift our small businesses, which I'm doing as much as I can. But there needs to be a federal response to this. There needs to be a, a federal safety net that we don't have, and I worry about what that means for our small businesses and our communities, and the kind of impact it's going to have for small restaurants, you know, the like big chains are still making money and they, and if they're not making money in certain areas, they can 
close an area down, but that doesn't have the devastating kind of impact on their business and on their margin as it does for a small business that may just have one location or two or three. You know what I mean? Oh, I agree a hundred percent. I I think the restaurant industry um, should be bailed out, just 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 like you know other major industries. And without it, I I I just I I can't imagine it surviving. Um, it's it can't be just thrust upon us concerned citizens to save local businesses um, when it's just such a widespread problem. I, I will say the optimist in me wonders if the restaurant, this will be a forcing function for restaurants in general to, to change mm-hmm. how they run their business. I mean, it's, it's, it's long been, as someone who grew up in restaurants, I know that the margins are incredibly slim. Um, and you know, you'd be lucky if you even have two weeks worth of cash on hand. And that's just not a, it's just not a smart way to run any business. Um, but perhaps, you know, as painful as a pandemic is right now, perhaps, you know, the long tail effect is maybe dining becomes a more well thought out business plan. Maybe dining becomes something, certain kinds of dining formats become, um, turn into a seasonal format or perhaps, um, takeout and delivery becomes, you know, a norm and restaurants find a way to optimize that. Right. I, mm-hmm. I just read in the wall street journal actually that, um, the former CEO of Uber has been on a stealth mission, um, by, of acquiring, uh, dilapidated or, you know, abandoned restaurant spaces on the cheap. And he's doing that um, as an investment towards, you know, delivery exclusive uh, dining options. So I'm wondering if there is going to be this mass Uberization of the delivery of food, any, anything that is any, any, any items that are, you know, meant for consumer consumption. I, I don't know. I, I just, you know, I'm trying to see the positive side of the pandemic hard as it is, mm-hmm. but who knows, maybe, maybe in five years time dining as we know it today will be completely revolutionized, but that's wishful thinking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely think we're on the precipice of something very different than what we know right now. Mm-hmm. I do have to say that the Uber thing somewhat terrifies me because I can't put any um, hope in a man who has made so much money not actually paying people as employees. But yep. I, I, what I, what I am hoping is that this brings to light how unsustainable the current model of restaurants are, mm-hmm. and that they get by by undercharging the customer and underpaying the worker. And that's just not sustainable. Like people are not paying the true cost of food. You know, it it costs more than $5 to make a sandwich. It's just not possible to be giving you a $5 sandwich that is of quality. You know what I mean? And right. restaurants are constantly trying to find ways to to express what the true cost of that meal is to the customer by what they put on the menu, you know, how they word it, that it's organic, farm-raised, you know, uh, no antibiotics, whatever. 
kind of indicators to the diner that this costs a lot to make. However, I still don't think people really get it. And I think they're, they were starting to get it at the beginning of the pandemic, on, you know, that we were exalting our um, nurses and doctors and grocery store workers and people who are really keeping our economy alive. But we're not talking as much about that now. And we're still not talking enough about the farmers who are keeping all of this going and the rampant abuse that happens to farm workers. So I, I still am a little, I feel a little skeptical of where we're going to get in terms of improving the actual lives and the type of work that these people have to do. That are people still going to be paid $14? And that's supposed to be on the high end, right? Are they still going to be paid 880 in North Carolina? Are people still going to be making pennies for work that clearly is an essential service? So, and that difference between lots of people consider it essential, but what an essential doctor is paid is not the same as an essential grocery store worker, which is not the same as essential farm worker, which is not the same as essential, you know, uh, restaurant worker who's doing your delivery. Mm-hmm. But what kind of value we bring to that work and that value being reflected in the pay is important. And I hope that as we restructure what restaurants look like or what dining looks like, that that is also part of that. And if if there's no federal, I, I, I'm just I'm just wary that or worried that if there's no real federal backing, that that's not going to happen because changing the mind of the consumer takes such a long time. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. Um, well, how how would it make you feel if years from now, um, chefs or you know, ambitious home cooks. What? How would it make you feel if the primary mode of the primary vehicle for these types of businesses are commercialized kitchens? How How do you think that would play out? I mean, that would definitely make me feel sad. I'd have to say, because <laughs> <laughs> I there's. I mean, there's such a beauty to the restaurant scene mm. to that environment. Mm. I love that environment. I I love working in that environment and I love dining in that environment. And mm-hmm. there's a reason why they've lasted for such a long time, you know, because it is a way to explore all kinds of different foods, to build community, to build trust, to build friendship. And that's just not achieved in the same way in a commercial kitchen mm-hmm. um, and in a commercial setup. And so that definitely... I that would be really difficult. I mean, something is lost when we're when everything when we're kind of on a conveyor belt for food and sending things to people's homes. Something is mm. in my opinion something is lost there because there's a there's a certain um what's the word? I'm thinking of the word in French rather than in English. There's a certain purposefulness to deciding to go dine out, you know? Like you're we're going to go get dressed, we're going to wear certain clothes depending on the vibe of the place. We're going to sit and have drinks. We're going to have appetizers. You know what I mean? There's a ritual to it that when you're getting takeout, like you can just sit down and watch TV at the same time and, you know, or or be working or just be talking. You know what I mean? It's just not as purposeful. And depending on your home environment, it can be purposeful in terms of how you set it up. But I think going out to eat requires a lot and that I enjoy that dance. And so the idea of a commercial kitchen and that being the only way for us to connect 
I do think it changes the culture and it definitely changes American culture, but it changes cultures that value that restaurant life. And that's such an intrinsic part of their culture even more so. And I'm thinking specifically of Europe and France, where I um, partly am from. So that's, that's sad for me if that's where we're headed. But I mean, what do you think about that? How do you feel? Well, I, I think you described the restaurant experience beautifully. And I think the fact that we're unable to visit restaurants now, it, it, there's a huge void in um, our social behaviors, right? As, as social creatures, right? We, we look for these rituals. We, we, we look for that song and dance, as, as you said. Um, and, you know, the fact that we're having to reprogram ourselves in, in, into connecting with other human beings, um, in other ways, it, yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're just all feeling so lost and unmoored. This is a huge part of being, uh, a, a social being in today's society. So I, I'm, I struggle to imagine a future without restaurants or some place where, people can get together and connect over food. Um, but I'm also hopeful. I, I hope that perhaps, you know, years from now, um, we can somehow capture that same connectivity through an experience with food um, in, in, in a format that is more sustainable, um, both from a public health perspective and also from um, you know, a revenue model perspective. I just, I'm just at a, I, I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> and, very, mm-hmm. and, and very smart people are, are, are still trying to figure that out. So um, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Right now, it's all about home cooking. And uh, as, as, as all the, the, the sourdough Instagrams over the summer and all, all, all the baking, uh, uh, photos that you've seen all over the internet as, as, as they have shown. Um, I think the pandemic has at least ignited, you know, the home chef and all of us. Like what you're hearing, go over to Apple podcasts or wherever you're listening from and give us five stars. Putting content together is hard work and your quick validation will be a boost to my ego and will bump this podcast up on the charts. Thanks so much. Now let's get back to the show. So what are you cooking in your home? Uh, these days, like I'm happy with scrambled eggs over rice. <laughs> that sounds so good. <laughs> Simple I, and so good. I, yeah, I think I peaked pretty early, early on. What were you making at the start? I was braising a lot. I know I'm, I'm not, I'm a better cook than I am a, a baker and, um, for me, it was all about, you know, braising stews and, um, you know, watching cheap but filling cuts of meat just, you know, fall apart into this ooey gooeyness and ladling that over some kind of a carb. I mean, that, that was my jam. But now, honestly, I just care about feeding my three-year-old. And getting it done. Just getting it done. It's, it's all functional now. Um, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully, uh, um, uh, my, um, 
hopefully my my capacity for exploring you know create creative culinary exploration will will reignite itself but right now um i'm just beat (laughs) yeah no i i i feel the same way i have i think in the beginning i felt like okay let's just this is the time where i can learn to do all the things that i've wanted to do Mm-hmm. but haven't had the time and somehow I feel like I have all the time in the world. And then as the, as our quarantine continued and it was very obvious that we weren't going to go back to work to like the physical space, I, my job just exploded. Like I had so many responsibilities and so much more to do that I felt overwhelmed. So I started baking way less, like everything just dropped, you know? Um, and I, have been now, you know, it's election season and I can't wait for it to be over, but I'm looking forward to that time when it's over and I can have time to kind of switch back into a new mode, you know, and be able to cook and do what and bake and do the things that I enjoy. I wanted to switch gears a bit and talk a bit about what we had discussed in other conversations that we've had off air um, and just get your opinion or your thoughts on the BLM protest this summer mm-hmm. and how that has been received by your own family, your community. I, I would imagine that people are seeing the, after experiencing the xenophobia and racism that Chinese Americans have experienced for a really long time. This is not the first time, right? But that is heightened as a result of how our president characterizes the virus and tries mm-hmm. to put this on not just China, the country, but the Chinese community and really feeding into these racist tropes that he likes to do dog whistles to. What what has it been for your community, your family in particular, to be experiencing all of this in a time that also has these really jarring protests, especially at the height of the summer? Yeah, it definitely... Particularly after um, or during the George Floyd protests, it it certainly gave way to um, very difficult conversations, uh, at least amongst my own family. And you know, there was a a seminal um, piece that Pulitzer Prize winning um, Vietnamese author Viet Tan Nguyen wrote in Time Magazine that really caught my attention. And there is this one paragraph that I think succinctly um, summarizes the views espoused by my family with regard to the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm just going to read you a, a small snippet. He basically says, Asian Americans are caught between the perception that we are inevitably foreign and the temptation that we can be a lot allied with white people in a country built on white supremacy. As a result, anti-black and anti-brown and anti-native racism runs deep in Asian American communities. Immigrants and refugees, including Asian ones, know that we usually have to start low on the ladder of American success. But no matter how low down we are, We know that America allows us to stand on the shoulders of Black, Brown, and Native people. Throughout Asian American history, Asian Americans, excuse me, Asian immigrants and their descendants 
have been offered the opportunity by both black people and white people to choose sides in the black-white racial divide. And we have far too often chosen the white side. Asian Americans, while actively critical of anti-Asian racism, have not always stood up against anti-Black racism. Frequently, we have gone along with the status quo and affiliated with white people. So, you know, at the height at, at, at the height of the the, the protests over the summer, um, I fielded a lot of you know uncomfortable questions from my family. They would say things like, "Well, oh, you know, why why are they?" Um, why are they vandalizing these stores? Why are they looting? Why are they just, you know, devolving into uncivilized behavior? Um, and, you know, I did my best to kind of give them a quick recap about how systemic racism works. Um, but mostly I, I, I did my best to call them on their bullshit. And I told them, look, you really need to check your privilege at the door. You know, this whole notion of being the model minority, that's all, you know, a concept. It's, 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 a, it's a construct that um, white supremacists fed us, us Asians, you know, they, they, with, with, what, what they do to, um, you know, stoke uh, dissent and, and to stoke your anti-blackness is to say things like, oh, Hey, black community, look at how successful and hardworking um, the Asian American community is. Why can't you be like that? To say that there is one minority that is a model that is better than another. I mean, it just, it just the 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 inverse of that is to say that there is another community that is um, not ideal. Mm-hmm. And you know, I. I did have a difficult time explaining that to my family because they were just so caught up. They, they bought the story. They bought the story of, you know, Hey, as long as you, you, if you have a dream and you come to America and you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you quote unquote work hard, you're going to get there. You can get a slice of the American dream. Um, and so it, I, I think it took them by surprise when I explained to them that, you know, you, for the very first time are having to check your privilege and um, fear for your physical safety. I mean, you, you are, you, the, people are looking at your overtly East Asian features and, and they think you are a vector of the disease of a disease, the, the coronavirus. And this has actually happened um, over and over again in, in American history. Anti-Asian sentiment is as old as America itself. And the only reason why you're addressing it now is because it's so overt. Well, I've got news for you. Um, You know, black and brown people have had to deal with this kind of violence, this kind of racism for for generations. You know, for the for the first time in, in, in the 40 years that you've that you've been in the U.S., mom, dad, like you're 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 fearing for your lives, you're fearing for your physical safety. Imagine a community that has had to live with that for generations. We are talking hundreds of years. And so I think, you know, the the thing with Asian elders is they never acknowledge outright that you're, that, that you're correct. They never concede. They never, (laughs) they will never back down, but you know, silence is good. Silence means they heard you. 
yeah. <laughs> they're processing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they, it was a really difficult conversation. And then they would ask me, you know, I hate to say, I, I'm embarrassed to even admit it. They would ask me these, these ridiculous questions like, well, why do their women have so many babies with, with different men? Mm. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. So I see Reagan, you know, you bought Reagan's uh, myth of, of uh, you know, the, the welfare queen. Like that's, yeah. you, you bought that spin, right? Um, well, what if I, you know, were to say to you that, um, for the, for, for the majority of the time that America, that Asians have been in the U S Asians have been viewed as dirty Orientals, you know, who are, um, who are infected with all sorts of different diseases and, you know, are, are, are seen as, uh, um, you know, a group that's stealing jobs from honest Americans, like you're, how, 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 you need to recognize that what we're experiencing now in the Asian community is not new. It's just very overt and it's very right. timely for us. Right. So don't think for a moment that this is new. It's just taking on a different form, but it's not new. Yeah. And it's so in your face. Um, and I confess to being concerned for my physical safety, um, for the very first time in my entire life. And I've come to the realization that, you know, I, I, I have, I too have been for all my education and for all my, you know, so-called wokeness, I, for the only recently have I, for the first time felt scared about walking down a street that's unfamiliar to me. Um, thinking of ways to, you know, trump up, um, like code switch. Right. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I yeah, am absolutely. the oddball, you know, Chinese girl that is a natural brunette. When I go out in public, I make sure to wear my hair down and it's silly. It's, it's, it's not like, it's, it's not like, you know, being a brunette, is just an immediate sign of whiteness. It's not. But the, the fact that I'm even thinking about these things. Or, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and people of color, we all know there is a white voice. There is, yep. right? And we're able to, <laughs> to switch back and forth. I make sure when I'm out in the store, I'm, I'm, I'm doing anything in public, I speak in cr my cr crystal clear white voice. Mm. Um, and the fact that I'm, I'm even exhibiting these be behaviors subconsciously. Is it's, not, it's not on purpose. I mean, it just happens. Yeah. But, you know, I have, sometimes it I, is on purpose, actually. Totally, totally. But, um, you know, I have to remind myself and especially my family that, you know, the, the, the civil rights movement um, was founded upon black and brown bodies. Black and brown bodies were brutalized for the privileges that we Asian Americans get to enjoy now, today. And so... I can't promise you that my conservative Chinese parents will um, stand stand with the BLM protesters down in City Hall, um, but I have tried my best to at least, you know, remove the filter from their eyes. Like, thing, life is just not as rosy. It's just not as simple as if you work hard, you shall receive. Right. Yeah. Racism is systemic. It's entrenched. And we are all living in that matrix. 
So snap out of it. <laughs> These are the kinds yeah. of conversations I've had with my family. Yeah. And I mean, a, a function of privilege is being somewhat oblivious, you know, or, or, or not, not having to know what's going on, not having to understand everyone's experience, pain, joy, et cetera. I mean, that's part of, that's part of what privilege affords one. And I think the fact that you're even just having these conversations with your family is so amazing because that is the hardest part. It's really hard to change people's minds. And I think even we don't even necessarily need to go into it trying to change minds, but rather to have an open and honest conversation, which is really difficult. A lot of people I know can't get there or if they, I mean, can't get there because they're trying to protect their own peace. You know what I mean? And protect their own sanity. And these are not conversations that just happen once or twice or three times and make an impact. It's, it can be decades, but wanting to engage in that actively doing so is part of the first step. And I'm, I'm just blown away just hearing you talk about it. Cause I can, I can, I can, I feel like I'm there. You know what I mean? I feel like I can, especially when you describe elders, not, um, acknowledging necessarily if you're right or wrong, just silence that, that made me laugh. <laughs> I have had that experience in my own black family. It's um, true. Did, it's so, true. Yeah. But that's just really hard to do. So I, I'm just, I just feel really excited to even hear that you're having those types of conversations. So to just to switch gears a bit, um, as we wrap up, I want to come back to the experience of Chinese American restaurants or Chinese Chinese restaurants um, in our Bay Area, and mm-hmm. what what you see as their future as we move perhaps into new dining models or into trying to salvage the one we have. What do you think is the future for Chinese dining in America and more specifically in the Bay? Hmm. Well, the optimist in me likes to think that Chinese restaurants will never go away. Um, I think specifically San Francisco's Chinatown, I truly think it will never die because it's such an, it offers um, such an overt symbol of the Chinese American experience to people who have no inkling of that experience, right? So I think civic leaders, community leaders, um, businesses in Chinatown, they are going to fight tooth and nail to keep that community alive. What remains to be, what I'm, what I'm not certain about is the Chinatowns in all across America that are not overt. Um, when I think about Chinatowns, I, I, I don't necessarily think of them as particular neighborhoods of a metropolitan area. I think of them as, you know, to me, uh, if, if, if a certain neighborhood carries some kind of sociological impact, meaning it's place where, um, Chinese people you know, go to shop, to congregate, to, to, to coalesce, to build some sense of community. Um, I think that is in, a, in, in effect a Chinatown and in San Francisco specifically, 
there have there are a lot of micro Chinatowns, such as the Richmond District, such as um, Irving Street, Noriega. You know, it's all these micro Chinatowns all across cities in the U.S. that I think are, might be in danger of of suffering the most, um, suffering a higher proportion of you know unemployment or or business closure um, because they don't have all those overt you know, it's, it's harder to sell because, because the, the symbols of Chineseness of, of otherness, it's, it's just not so obvious that novelty isn't there. So I'd be very curious to see, um, you know, what, what ends up happening to these little micro Chinatowns that I know exist, um, all over, all over the Bay area for, for certain. And, and, and I would say parts of, all over LA, parts of New York. Um, I think it's those businesses that we need to to watch out for. Yeah, to really do more to support and to preserve. I exactly. Mean, when I, yeah, when I when I think of when I think of, I mean, I just keep going back to what you're saying about the micro Chinatowns because I think that is when people think of Chinatown, they think of a large area, but there's so many small pockets in every city. Okay. And there are many cities throughout the Midwest where there's not a dedicated Chinatown, but that does not mean there's an absence of Chinese restaurants or a Chinese community. And exactly. How do we continue to support and uplift those communities in this time and not just thinking of it as a, a one area that is concentrated with many um, Chinese Americans in one specific area, which is just not really the breath of the Chinese American experience. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, San Francisco's Chinatown district has very obvious markers of Chineseness. you know, the, mm-hmm. the pagodas, the interesting architecture, um, you know, the lights, the lanterns. Um, I mean, they're, those are obvious markers. People can see that it is a Chinatown, but you know, out in the avenues, um, where there's a huge congregation of, you know, a, a pan Asian businesses, truly, um, those, I would say from a, from a sociological perspective, those are certainly Chinatowns. Um, and it's, it's those micro Chinatowns that I worry about because they may not have, um, they, they may not garner the, the same amount of attention and therefore protection. So yeah, let's, let's, let's see what happens. I mean, to be honest, going down to, um, the Chinatown district is difficult for me these days. Uh, it's more convenient for me to patronize the micro Chinatowns that are out in the avenues or the West side of, of San Francisco. And I suspect that is true for, um, you know, most, Asian Americans who have have already been here for for a few decades, right? That that centralized place is not necessarily where they're always going to be going. They're going to exactly. be exactly. They're, they're more localized. Exactly. Exactly. So, what's next for you? Oh, as embarrassed as I am to admit it, um, a big fat nothing. <laughs> I feel I had a lot of plans for 2020 and um, I think COVID just, you know, wiped out all those plans and 
my situation isn't unique. I think a lot of working mothers are struggling. Um, there have been tons and tons of, of um, reports put out recently by, you know, all sorts of think tanks um, about how, you know, mothers, whether working or not, the women are suffering. Um, they're bearing the brunt of the, the, actually there was a great article in the New York times recently. Um, and I think the headline was mothers are the shock absorbers of our society mm-hmm. during the pandemic. And that is, that is so true. I think in, ter- in, in times of, you know, economic uncertainty, heterosexual couples, they just, you know, resort to, um, traditional gender norms. And I think, there's been a lot of good reporting um, done recently about how women are having to pump the brakes on their careers. They're um, they're not leaning in. They're they're leaning out. They're leaning away um, because of the pandemic. Because they whether it's children or um, you know senior citizens or you know other other things that families have have their families have deputized them to do. I think women, it's just fallen on women to keep the family going, you know, regardless of what that familial um, unit looks like. And so to answer your question, I, I'm in that position. Um, I have certainly turned down work this year because, you know, we, 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 we didn't have childcare for many months. Um, and even, even though we've decided to put our three-year-old in school this fall, I, I'm afraid, I'm afraid to ramp up my work because what if we have to close down again? What if schools are, are shut down, right? It's going to fall yeah. on me. And yeah. I think my, my, my sense of, 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 um, duty, you know, toward my employer and my just sense, my sense of work ethic just prohibits me from half-assing anything. So it, because I know that I, I could potentially have a full plate um, if the winds shift and the pandemic wor- worsens. I, you know, I'm 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 just treading water right now. I'm just coasting, and I suspect many many working mothers um, are in the exact same position. Yeah, thank you so much, April. You're welcome. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with April. You can follow her writing at aprilpchen.com and follow her on Twitter at at P-R-I-L. You can find links to her writing along with her James Beard award-winning piece, Many China's Many Tables, in the show notes. Leap Year is a production of Leap Year Podcast, LLC. Created, hosted, and produced by Jess Cajo. Editing by Jess Cajo and LaCase Cousineau. Sound engineering by Brian Escobar. Music by Jess Cajo and Matt Boyer podcast artwork by Anthony Coscon Conover. Thank you so much for joining me for this first season of Leap Year. It has been quite the journey and I'm so thankful to everyone who downloaded, listened, rated, and reviewed. If you haven't written a review yet, please do so. It really helps the podcast grow and reach more people. Season two will be out next year with more stories from everyday people who have made big changes in their lives. I'll see you then.